With another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 394, aka Year 8, Week 22, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Richie Rich, and doing a solo show, solo show, solo show uh, this week. Uh, MC is on vacation, so it is just me. Uh, easier to set it up that way. And he might be doing a few of the future shows from vacation. However, not going to hold him to it. So for this week uh, and possibly the next two weeks following this, uh, it'll likely be just me. And if you don't like the solo shows, well, too bad, because that's what you're getting. Uh, I mean, personally, I don't like them either. It's easier to have a conversation with people, which is why when I do this thing solo, it ends up being just another episode of Richie Rich Reads the News. So typically we come to the table, we have things that we want to talk about uh, for the week, and then we get to the headlines if needed be, if need be, right? Like I keep those towards the very end just to see what's necessary, you know, filler, if you will. Uh, But when I do the show alone, it's all fucking filler and maybe a little bit of commentary from myself, depending on how I feel as we go through these articles. So I've got at least four articles lined up uh, for Richie Rich Reads the News, and let me give you those headlines, and then we'll get into it. Headline, think twice before calling the cops, the deadly cost of police welfare checks. Uh, Headline, California entrepreneur who was fined $1,000 for drawing informal maps without a license takes regulatory board to court. A headline, Myth versus Ideology, Why Free Market Thinking is Non-Ideological. And finally, the, uh, for, the, you know, for, the, for the basics, uh, headline, Don't Believe the People Blaming Crime on Defunded Police. And then I have more lined up uh, if and when we need to get to those. So let's just start off right off the bat here. Think twice before calling the cops the deadly cost of police welfare checks. And if anyone knows already, you've heard me on this podcast, uh, on Free Talk Live perhaps, uh, not a big fan of the police at all. So I got two anti, anti-5-0 stories uh, for, for my section of Richie Rich Reads the News. This should have never happened. We shouldn't be living in a society where you call for help and be killed. Mother of Damien Daniels, who was shot by police during a wellness check, Think twice before you call the cops to carry out a welfare check on a loved one, especially if you value that person's life, particularly if the person is disabled, mentally ill, elderly, autistic, hearing impaired, suffering from dementia, or might have a condition that hinders their ability to understand, communicate, or immediately comply with an order. According to an investigation by the Washington Post, cops sent out on welfare checks ended up shooting or killing the very people they were supposed to assist in at least 178 cases over the course of three years. Uh, So real quick, interjecting, do the math there, 52 weeks in a year, three years, 156 weeks, that's more than one welfare welfare check uh, victim per week over the course of three years. So every week, someone went, oh, man, something's wrong with my loved one, asked the cops to check on him, and then they were dead. Uh, Tatiana Jefferson was neither disabled, mentally ill, elderly, autistic, hearing impaired, suffering from dementia. The 28-year-old Fort Worth resident was merely awake at 2.30 a.m. playing video games with her 8-year-old nephew in a house with its lights on and the front door open. A neighbor, noticing the lights and open door, asked police to do a welfare check on the household. Instead of announcing themselves at the front door, police crept quietly around the house. Hearing noises outside, Jefferson approached her bedroom window to investigate. Seeing Jefferson through the window, police yelled, Put your hands up! Show me your hands! 
within seconds of issuing the order and without identifying themselves, police fired a single shot. Jefferson died on the scene. Uh, Tatiana Jefferson's death is yet one more grim statistic to add to the growing list of Americans, unarmed, impaired, or experiencing a mental health crisis, who have been killed by police, trained in the worst-case scenario, and thus ready to shoot first and ask questions later. The officer who fired the shot claimed he did so because he perceived a threat. Be warned to the armed agents of the American police state, we are all potential threats. At a time when growing numbers of unarmed people have been shot and killed for just standing a certain way or moving a certain way or holding something, anything, that police could misinterpret to be a gun or igniting some trigger-centric fear in a police officer's mind that has nothing to do with an actual threat to their safety, even the most benign encounters with police can have fatal consequences. For those undergoing a mental health crisis or with the special needs whose disabilities may not be immediately apparent, the dangers posed by these so-called wellness checks are even greater. For example, Walter Wallace Jr., a troubled 27-year-old black man with a criminal history and mental health issues, died in a hail of bullets fired by two police officers who clearly had not been adequately trained in how to de-escalate encounters with special needs individuals. Wallace wasn't unarmed. He was reportedly holding a knife when police confronted him. Yet neither cop attempted to use non-lethal weapons on Wallace, who appeared to be in the midst of a mental health crisis. In fact, neither cop even possessed a taser. Wallace, fired upon 14 times, was pronounced dead at the hospital. Gay Plack, a 57-year-old Virginia woman with bipolar disorder, was killed after two police officers sent to do a welfare check on her, entered her home uninvited, wandered through the house shouting her name, kicked open her locked bedroom door, discovered the terrified woman hiding in a dark bathroom and wielding a small axe, and four seconds later, shot her in the stomach. Four seconds! That's all the time it took for the two police officers assigned to check on Plaque to decide to use lethal force against her. Both cops opened fire on the woman. Rather than using non-lethal options, one cop had a taser, which he made no attempt to use, or attempting to de-escalate the situation. The police chief defended his officers' actions, claiming they had... No other option but to shoot the five-foot, four-inch woman with carpal tunnel syndrome who had to quit her job at a framing shop because her hands was too weak to use a machine that cut the mats. This is what happens when you indoctrinate the police into believing that their lives and their safety are paramount to anyone else's. Suddenly, everyone and everything else is a threat that must be neutralized or eliminated. In light of the government's ongoing efforts to predict who might pose a threat to public safety based on mental health censored data, tracked by wearable data such as Fitbits and Apple Watches and monitored by government agencies such as HARPA, the Health Advanced Research Project Agencies, encounters with the police could get even more deadly, especially if those involved had a mental illness or disability. As Steve Silberman writes for the New York Times, Anyone who cares for someone with a developmental disability, as well as for disabled people themselves, lives every day in fear, or lives every day in fear, that their behavior will be misconstrued as suspicious, intoxicated, or hostile by law enforcement. Indeed, disabled individuals make up a third to half of all people killed by law enforcement officers. People of color are three times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts. If you're black and disabled, you're even more vulnerable. A study by the Rudderman Family Foundation reports that disabled individuals make up the majority of those killed in use of force cases that attract widespread attention. This is true both for cases deemed illegal or against policy and for those in which officers are ultimately fully exonerated. Many more disabled civilians experience non-lethal violence and abuse at the hands of law enforcement officers. For instance, Nancy Schrock called 911 for help after her husband, Tom, who suffers with mental health issues, started stalking around the backyard, upending chairs, and screaming about demons. Several times before, police had transported Tom to the hospital, where he was medicated and sent home after 72 hours. This time, Tom was tasered twice. He collapsed, 
lost consciousness, and died. In South Carolina, police tasered an 86-year-old grandfather, reportedly in the early stages of dementia, while he was jogging backwards away from them. Now, this happened after Albert Chatfield led police on a car chase, running red lights and turning randomly. However, at the points that police chose to shock the old man with electric charges, he was out of the car, on his feet, and outnumbered by police officers much younger than him. In Georgia, campus police shot and killed a 21-year-old student who was suffering from a mental health crisis. uh, Scout Schultz was shot through the heart by campus police, when he approached the four of them late one night while holding a pocket knife, shouting, shoot me. Although police may have feared for their lives, the blade was still in its closed position. In Oklahoma, police shot and killed a 35-year-old deaf man seen holding a two-foot metal pipe on his front porch. He used the pipe to fend off stray dogs while walking. Despite the fact that witnesses warned police that uh, Magdiel Sanchez couldn't hear, and thus comply with their shouted orders to drop the pipe and get on the ground. Police shot the man when he was about 15 feet away from them. In Maryland, police, moonlighting as security guards, used extreme force to eject a 26-year-old man with Down syndrome and low IQ from a movie theater after the man insisted on sitting through a second screening of a film. Autopsy results indicate that Ethan Saylor died of complications arising from asphyxiation likely caused by a chokehold in florida police armed with assault rifles fired three shots at a 27 year old non-verbal autistic man who was sitting on the ground playing with the toy truck police missed the autistic man and instead shot his behavioral therapist charles kinsey who had been trying to get him back to his group home the therapist bleeding from the gunshot wound was then handcuffed and left lying face down on the ground for 20 minutes. In Texas, police handcuffed, tasered, and then used a a baton to subdue a seven-year-old student who has severe ADHD and a mood disorder. With school counselors otherwise occupied, school officials called police and the child's mother to assist after Yosio Lopez started banging his head on a wall. The police arrived first. In New Mexico, police tasered, then opened fire on a 38-year-old homeless man who suffered from schizophrenia, all in an attempt to get James Boyd to leave a makeshift campsite. Boyd's death provoked a wave of protest over heavy-handed law enforcement tactics. In Ohio, police forcefully subdued a 37-year-old bipolar woman wearing only a nightgown in near-freezing temperatures who was neither armed, violent, intoxicated, nor suspected of criminal activity. After being slammed onto the sidewalk, handcuffed, and left unconscious on the streets, Tanisha Anderson died as a result of being restrained in a prone position. And in North Carolina, a state trooper shot and killed a 29-year-old deaf motorist after he failed to pull over during a traffic stop. Daniel K. Harris was shot after exiting his car, allegedly because the trooper feared he might be reaching for a weapon. These cases and hundreds, if not thousands more, to go, that go undocumented every year speak to the crisis in policing when it comes to law enforcement's failure to adequately assess, de-escalate, and manage encounters with special needs or disabled individuals. While the research is relatively scant, what has happened, what has been happening is telling. Over the course of six months, police shot and killed someone who was in a mental health crisis every 36 hours. Among 124 police killings analyzed by the Washington Post, in which mental illness appeared to be a factor, they were overwhelmingly men, more than half of them white, 9 in 10 were armed with some kind of weapon, and most died close to home. But there was also a distinction, reports the Post, quote, This group was more likely to wield a weapon less lethal than a fire axe. Six had a toy gun, 3 in 10 carried a blade such as a knife or machete, weapons that rarely proved deadly to police officers. According to data maintained by the FBI and other organizations, Only three officers have been killed with an edged weapon in the past decade. Nearly a dozen of the mentally distraught people killed were military veterans, many of them suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of their service, according to police and family members. 
Another was a former California Highway Patrol officer who had been forced into retirement after enduring a severe beating during a traffic stop that left him suffering from depression and PTSD. And in 45 cases, police were called to help someone get medical treatment or after the person had tried and failed to get treatment on his own. Unquote. The U.S. Supreme Court as might be expected, has thus far continued to immunize police against charges of wrongdoing when it comes to use of force against those with mental illness. In a 2015 ruling, the court declared that police could not be sued for forcing their way into a mentally ill woman's room at a group home and shooting her five times when she advanced on them with a knife. The justices did not address whether police must take special precautions when arresting mentally ill individuals. The Americans with Disabilities Act requires reasonable accommodations for people with mental illness, which in this case might have been a less confrontational tactics. Where does this leave us? For starters, we need better police training across the board, but especially when it comes to de-escalation tactics and crisis intervention. A study by the National Institute of Mental Health found that crisis intervention team-trained officers made fewer arrests, used less force, and connected more people with mental services than their non-trained peers. As the Washington Post points out, quote, Although new recruits typically spend 60 hours learning to handle a gun, according to a recent survey by the Police Executive Research Forum, they receive only eight hours of training to de-escalate tense situations and eight hours learning strategies for handling the mentally ill. Otherwise, police are taught to employ tactics that tend to be counterproductive in such encounters, experts said. For example, most officers are trained to seize control when dealing with an armed suspect, often through stern, shouted commands. But yelling and pointing a gun is like pouring gasoline on a fire when you do that with the mentally ill, said Ron Honberg, police director with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. uh, Second, Police need to learn how to slow confrontations down instead of ramping up the tension and the noise. In Maryland, police recruits are now required to take a four-hour course in which they learn de-escalation tactics for dealing with disabled individuals. Speak calmly. Give space. Be patient. One officer in charge of the Los Angeles Police Department's mental response teams suggests that instead of rushing to take someone into custody, police should try to slow things down and persuade the person to come with them. Third, with all the questionable funds flowing to police departments these days, why not use some of those funds to establish the one disability rights activist describes as a 911 type number dedicated to handling mental health emergencies with community crisis response teams at the ready rather than police officers. Increasingly, funds are being directed toward technologies that support predictive policing and behavioral and health surveillance, for instance, HARPA, a healthcare counterpart to the Pentagon's research and development arm, DARPA, would take the lead in identifying and targeting signs of mental illness or violent inclinations among the populace by using artificial intelligence to collect data from Apple Watches, Fitbits, Amazon Echo, and Google Home. It wouldn't take much for these nascent predictive programs to give rise to healthcare versions of red flag gun laws, which allow the government to preemptively take action against individuals who may be perceived as a potential threat where the problem arises and when you put the power to determine who is a potential danger in the hands of government agencies the courts and the police in the end while we need to make encounters with police officers safer for people with suffering from mental illness or with disabilities what we really need as i point out in his book Battlefield America, The War on American People, and the author's John Whitehead, uh, and its fictional counterpart, The Eric Blair Diaries, is to make encounters with police safer for all individuals across the board. End of the article. So like I said at the beginning of the article, not a big fan of the police in general, uh, in its current form, right? I'm, not, I, I'm a big fan of security. I'm a big fan of self-defense. I'm a big fan of agency. Uh, so you have the right to defend yourself against aggression, and you can, you can, you can uh, give the, that right away or loan it out or you know, give agency, give it to an agent of yours uh, to handle that response for you. So if you need a security service or someone else to handle your defense, right, there you go. Um, ironically enough, I remember, I think it was like fourth grade 
or something like that, there was a, a female classmate who had a crush on me. And as you can imagine, as female classmates with crushes go at that age, um, it wasn't like the friendly type. Um, and so at one point, my, the, my fourth grade self drafted a contract for another fourth grader uh, to be my bodyguard. Just keep her away from me. Whatever it takes. Um, and I don't remember. I mean, the payment might have been like, you know, some like a stack or whatever. I don't, I don't even remember what the contract said. I just know like my dad found it. And they're like, you're not allowed to write contracts. I was like, why the hell not? I have a bodyguard now to keep this bitch off me. Um, nah, she wasn't really a bitch. But, you know, you, you know what I mean. So there's always, there's always a place uh, for agency in that respect, right? Like I, I could not get into any more trouble uh, for trying to keep her away from me. I think one of the, might have been second grade at one point. It's the only time I've ever been in a food fight because I was calmly eating my lunch and then all of a sudden, smap, like on top of my head, like the mashed potatoes and turkey patty that they had for lunch for the week. And then it just devolved into chaos from there. So Rich had to write like a hundred times, I will not start a food fight, even though I had not started that food fight. Um, But I digress. Back to the police. Fuck them. We're going to get into an article here in a little bit. Maybe we'll do it next just for continuity's sake. Uh, Don't believe the people blaming crime on defunded police. So I'm a big fan, you know, of the defund the police movement for this very reason, right? Like, they're shit at their job for the most part. They harass people, you know, most most of their day is harassing innocent people. And when it comes time to do, like, the real crime work, um, they're, like, they're nowhere to be found, and then it extends up the justice system. Um, I'm going to share an example of a close personal family drama that has recently happened and i'm not going to name names and i'm not going to name crimes but just how bad the justice system is and how bothersome it is you know to me so there was uh there's a victim and a perpetrator and the victim uh years after the perpetrator perpetrated right came forward and said like hey i was perpetrated against the perpetrator confessed to the police and then recently was on trial for this. And so the victim testified to the victimhood and the, and the alleged crimes. There was a confession on file and the police testified to having received the confession of this aggressor and perpetrator. Uh, and the justice system, by way of jury, let the perpetrator go. Devastating to the victim, right? And uh, part of the reason I'm I, I'm known about this, and and it's fresh in my mind, is because allegedly the perpetrator tried to use myself uh, as his probable cause, right? Like. It may not have been me because it may have been Rich or this other guy that was, you know, known to be around the area of the crime. And so it was let off. And so I'm feeling bad because this is a close personal family situation. And yet, as an anarchist, I am not surprised by this. The justice system is terrible. Of course, the perpetrator got off. Because that's what this justice system does. It harasses innocent people on a daily basis. And when you have a real crime with a confession, right? Oh, no. Just let him go. So forgive me or not uh, if you don't like the fact that I'm okay with street justice. I'm I'm okay with vigilantism. I'm okay with... Uh, you know, third-party self-defense, you know, that, that agency that you can give. And I'm okay with delayed fucking justice, right? If, if the st- 
state isn't going to do like the one thing that's in their purview to do protect the innocent. Well then by God, somebody has to do it. And if it's not going to be the police, you know, then some agency should rise up within the marketplace to do that. And if that's not going to happen in the meantime, right, the, the community must come together and the smallest community is like the family unit. And so I'm hoping, right, if anyone within the, the family or the extended family comes across this perpetrator, right, that his life force is snuffed out as violently as possible because I'm not a nice guy. You know, like you can, you can make it clean and they throw them in the water or take them to the pig farm or whatever. Uh, but no, you know, the, 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 that type of crime requires the utmost violence of retribution, like torture level in my, in my humble personal opinion. Um, and I'm okay with that, right. On a, on the grand scale of things. If you eliminate the police, right, can things become more violent? Yes. Yes, they can. Am I okay with that? For the most part, yes, because I, I personally also believe that that, that is an intermediary stage. Um, because I, as I have said in the past, violence is always the underlying solution to problems. And what we do as a civilized society is do our best to work things out prior to the violence. But by no, by no means is the violence ever eliminated. Uh, it's just that we don't have to use it when we can all agree. Uh, and I, I'm also on record saying in the past that the government, the state, right, has no reason to not use violence first, right? There's a reason why they, you know, they shout down and escalate and yell and, you know, be, become like dominant in their commands. And that's because that shit works on most people, right? Like, I, again, I'm not really a nice guy. So when I get mad, uh, I act like the cops for the most part. I scream and I yell and I overwhelm people. And the reason for that is because throughout the discourse time period, right? I have learned to skip to the end, right? Like by the time it gets to the screaming and yelling with an individual, it's because in the past I have tried to be, uh, you know, calm, cool, collected, political. What's the, I forget the word that I'm looking for. Um, you know, I can't remember the word, but you know what I mean? I'm, tr I'm trying to rationally, you know, provide discourse with how things are going and at some point that doesn't work right and i go fuck it i'm yelling now it's time to yell you have you have pushed me to the point of yelling and so now i'm going to yell and what i've learned over time is just skip to the yelling why you know why 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 go through all that you know calm cool collected judicial you know discourse if it's not going to get anywhere. So just skip to the end, just skip to the end. And so what the police have done as part of their now training is skip to the end for them. Because for the most part, right. When, you know, people don't want to be harassed. People don't want to be pulled over on the side of the road. People don't want to be harangued for, you know, wherever they happen to be, if, especially if they have done nothing wrong. And so there's resistance when you send out some asshole with a badge to confront these people. Right? I remember, again, one time when I was, you know, doing more dumb things, uh, but also having fun with it, a uh, cop pulled me over and he came up to the window and he shined a flashlight into the window. And so I had a little flashlight on my satchel, one of those like squeeze lights. And I squeezed my little flashlight back at him. They're like, look, look, dickhead, I've got a flashlight too. He's like, be careful with that. You know, I, I've, I'm, on, I'm on you for my safety. I go, well, if you want it to be safe, you shouldn't be harassing people out here in the dark, right? You could have just left me alone. There was no victim. There was no crime. 
no one called for their services to say that I was, you know, going a little too fast on the highway. They took it upon themselves to come and harass me. So what did they expect? You know, did why, why would they expect that sort of behavior to be, you know, felt thought of or felt good about, or, you know, either they're going to get resistance or they're going to get submission. And the easiest way to get the submission that they're looking for is just skip to the end, escalate to violence. They're trained for that. They can handle the violence. They don't even need you to be violent first. They just go, shit, got a pipe, shoot him, right? Shit, he does not listen. He is he is deaf and not listening to my command. Shoot him. And it's that uh, skip to the end mentality that needs to be uh, countered, fought back against, which is why, again, I am not the nonviolent, peaceful anarchist you know, peaceful libertarian. Um, I know, I know there are some within like the anarcho capitalist leanings that say like, well, we're not those bomb throwing anarchists. Well, why the hell not? Sometimes they have a point. Sometimes that's what needs to be done. And when it comes to the police, if you want them to take a step back and to deescalate the situation peacefully, calmly, rationally, judiciously, right? then they need to they need to face uh, the threat that they are putting out there, right? When violence meets violence, all of a sudden people are ready to negotiate, or at least I hope. You know, that's one of the things we covered over the past couple of weeks with the whole Russian escalation to nuclear war and how the leftists here in the States and that leftist mentality want to push things toward nuclear Armageddon. Um, hopefully not, Right. If you get to that level, maybe it's time to talk about things. And so what I am, what I have always suggested is that if cops are going to enter a situation and the first thing that goes to their mind is, oh, I'm going to make it home to my family tonight, right? Then that should also be the first thing on your mind. I'm going to make it home to my family tonight. And if the cop decides to like escalate the situation, then that's on him. He has escalated. And then you, average citizen, right, should be allowed to retaliate and, you know, with, with extreme prejudice, right? If, they, if the cops are banging on your door or entering your home, right, for a welfare check, not, you know, not identifying themselves as police, not being cool, calm, collected, or whatever, without a warrant, just entered the home, right, walk through the home you know that's that's an invasion that should be met with violence and extreme prejudice they you know all the all the no-knock raids right those that should be easily dismissed uh by people being you know as violent back and if that happened enough right if they lost enough cops right because people actually fought back right then maybe maybe They'd be smart enough to come to the negotiating table and say like, well, what we're doing isn't working. You know, maybe all this violence needs to stop and hopefully they'll be smart about it. I doubt it. They'll try to escalate it and it'll be an ever increasing escalation until they figure it out. Um, But I'm also okay with that because, hey, that means, you know, less cops because more of them will, will fall in the line of duty. But yeah, they, 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 they escalate because they can, because they know that they're not going to face resistance. Um, and it's in that face of resistance. Like if you've ever seen the people like, you know, uh, there, there's a handful of videos out there. I don't, I don't seek them out, but I do happen across them, right? Of the violent traffic stop gone wrong where the guy gets pulled over and the cop goes to, and then blam, just fucking shotgun to the face or, you know rifle shot rifle shots fired and all of a sudden that puffed out chested macho cop you know wannabe fucking tough guy is on the ground crying for backup because he's facing the fear that he puts into everyone that he pulled over and he responds accordingly like a little bitch and if you want them to start backing down more of them need to face that on a regular basis 
and then maybe you won't have these macho, tough guy wannabes. I was either the bully or I was bullied too much in high school assholes joining the police force, trying to get their jollies off hurting innocent people. And maybe, just maybe, you would see, you know, actual security agents, agencies uh, crop up in parallel to that, offering actual protective services, right? You know, uh, I don't want to see cops patrolling. Right, just fucking stay home till you're called. Right, stand by the phone like the fire department, you know, or the amber lamps. Right, when you're needed, we'll call you. And security agents, you know, could have dispatch posts set up around town for faster response time. Just one guy posted up, you know, but not patrolling. Just fucking sit in your barn, sit in your shed. Just sit there and wait till we need you. Hell, if you're on call. Right, you could just sit at home, and then when you get the little fucking flashing light in your man cave that says "time for the police to get to work," uh, you can respond accordingly to that. I don't know how it looks or how it's going to work, but I do know that the current way that policing goes doesn't do anything but end up with situations like this. And as the article ended, right, the best way to solve this problem is for is for police to treat everyone with a little bit more respect and a little bit more decorum, and a little bit more dignity, and maybe, just maybe, you wouldn't have, you know, more than one person a week, you know, dying at a welfare check because these ass clowns don't know how to help people. They only don't know how to escalate to violence. And that's the language they want to speak. Uh, that's the language we should learn so we can speak it with them as well. Moving on. Headline. Don't believe the people blaming crime on defunded police. Police budgets are up in cities across America. It's a tale as old as time that politicians benefit by whipping up crime panic and accusing opponents of being soft on the issue. And so it goes in 2022 with candidates, mostly conservatives, but also some Democrats trying to position themselves as centrists, insisting that one, crime is rising, and two, it's the fault of criminal justice reform policies. Both claims are highly suspect, uh, and they link to more data. And especially so, the flavor of blame that suggests this mythical crime wave is the fault of liberals and progressives defunding the police. Yes, defund the police became a popular rallying cry during the summer of 2020, as people all over the country took to the streets to protest police brutality, and yes, it can still be heard as a refrain in some activist circles, but even some mainstream politicians briefly flirted with this rhetoric. It's never been a serious policy proposal, nor one that many, if any, leaders, local or national, have acted upon. President Joe Biden, long friend of the police and, and proponent of dubious crime panic policies, recently proposed his Safer America plan, some $37 billion in federal funding for cops. President Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget requests a fully paid for new investment of approximately $35 billion to support law enforcement and crime prevention, in addition to the president's $2 billion discretionary request for these same programs, noted the White House. Cities and counties, too, have been raising police budgets. ABC News examined the budgets of more than 100 cities and counties and found 83% are spending at least 2% more on police in 2022 than in 2019. Of the 109 areas examined, 49 raised law enforcement funding by more than 10% and 91 raised it by at least 2%. Only eight places cut funding to law enforcement by more than 2%. Nonetheless, politicians, pundits, and police persist in spreading the politically convenient myth that law enforcement agencies have been massively defunded. Despite what the public records show, an analysis of broadcast transcripts reveal that candidates, law enforcement leaders, and television hosts discussed the impact of defunding the police more than 10,000 times in the last two years, and the mentions aren't subsiding this campaign season, ABC found. Take scandal-plagued Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. He claims that crime is up because defunding has consequences. Meanwhile, his agency budget is up more than $250 million, according to ABC. 
In Los Angeles County, the police budget was up to $3.6 billion in 2021 2022 from $3.3 billion in 2018 and 2019. Even if these cuts were real, the premise that lower police spending leads to increased crime or the other way around is counter to decades of evidence, according to public data and criminal justice experts. ABC points out uh, an ABC OTV analysis of state and local police funding and violent crime data in the U.S. overall between 1985 and 2020 found no relationship between year-to-year police spending and crime rates. An analysis by the Washington Post found similar results from 1960 to 2018. Further analysis of the Los Angeles County's own crime data show violent crime numbers don't move up or down with any relationship to money spent on law enforcement or the number of officers on patrol. But lately... Budget cuts are resolutely not the case in many places. In Chicago, the police budget was $1.9 billion in 2021 2022, up from $1.7 billion in 2018 2019. In Phoenix, the police budget in 2021 2022 was $786.7 million, up from $687.8 million in 2018 2019. And even in places where there have been some drops, the budgets are still massive. For instance, in New York City, the 2021-2022 budget was down to $5.4 billion from $5.6 billion in 2018-2019, and this year's budget is still up from $5.2 billion in 2020 and 2021. End of that article. If anything, in a lot of these cities, uh, crime is up. Because, again, the police don't actually do anything about these violent crimes. Uh, they're too busy harassing, you know, the average person, uh, you know, for, for going a few miles an hour over the speed limit or crossing the street outside of the lines or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and investigating the violent crimes, right, doesn't bring money in to the police force, right? You got, you got to go out there and generate that revenue you can't just, you know, solve the crimes that you've technically been hired to do. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the justice system in a lot of places, and for whatever reason, are, uh, for lack of a better term, soft on crime, right? So in the case where there was an actual crime, either, you know, either uh, violent crime or property crime, you know, theft, damage, whatever, uh, th- they let people go, Right. And I don't know how many articles I've come across where, you know, man stabbed someone on subway uh, out with no bail, stabbed someone else. Or, you know, in, in San Francisco or whatever, you know, uh, shoplifting is not a real crime anymore under a certain amount. So people just walk in, steal shit and leave because there's virtually no consequence. Right. The, the police aren't going to investigate that. They're going to get away with it. Even if they do investigate, it's a misdemeanor, you know, with no, with no significant penalty uh, to be a deterrent, right? And when it comes to, you know, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the most peaceful guy around. Uh, so when it comes to violent crimes and property crimes, I absolutely believe uh, that violence needs to be a deterrent, right? Like for a long time ago when I was more active on social media, uh, I would get into it with the uh, anarcho-communists, the, the commie version of the anarchists, the ones who uh, m- more than me resemble uh, that, that bomb-throwing you know, moniker that they, you know, the association that they have with the anarchist term. And in, you know, in those instances, the, the ANCOMs would say stuff like, well, no one owns anything, man, so absent the state will just come and take it. And it won't be ours because we don't own it. We'll just we'll just be using it, right? They they separate, you know, ownership and use. So if I put my hammer down, it's not my hammer anymore because I'm not using it. And anyone who picks it up now owns it because hey, they're going to be using it. Um, and so at the time, I had suggested that well, that's fine, but don't be surprised with the retribution that comes from that mentality, right? And it put it puts me in a in a moral gray area where I'm okay abiding by your moral code. So I have friends who abide by the non-aggression principle, 
I go, great. I will honor your non-aggression principle and return in kind my non-aggression, right? And so we live peacefully with each other because no one, none of us are out there trying to start shit with each other because of the non-aggression principle, and that works. Uh, what also works within that paradigm, right, is the need for defensive violence, right, to protect life, liberty, and property, particularly yours, but as I said earlier, acting in agency for another, fine by me. And so if someone thinks that it's okay morally, ethically, you know, to steal your things or to harm you physically, right, then doing so to them aggressively if needed is fully within their operational paradigm and should be taken advantage of because that makes them less of a threat to you, right? If someone says like, oh, no, it's cool. If you like, if you go into someone's house and stab them in the throat in the middle of the night, that's, that's perfectly fine in my world, right? then the first thing that should happen is we should all break into that dude's house and stab him in the neck in the middle of the night because that's okay in his world, and now no one else is at a threat of him coming into their house and stabbing them in the neck. Um, and if so, and some you know followers of the non-aggression principle what may claim you know that that's an act of aggression, and I go, fine, you may be right. However, I still think you could justify it under self-defense, because that person who said those things has already lev- levied a credible threat, right? You, you can already assume that they're okay breaking into the house in the middle of the night and stabbing you, and why would you want to wait for that to happen, right? Why wait for, why wait for that opportunity, you know? It's like, well, you know, uh, I, I watched a self-defense video. He said, like, before the first punch is thrown, you were already in a fight. Right. So if you find yourself in a fight, it's okay to throw the first punch. Right. You don't have to get hit in order to start defending yourself. So why wait? Right. If someone's standing in your way and you've asked them to move politely, right? Because this is a peaceful society. Excuse me, sir. I would like to get by. And they go, no, bitch. I'm not letting you through. Right. You are already in an altercation. Right. The, the fight has started. So drop that dude as swiftly, as hard as possible. And I don't even care if you take liberties with them afterwards because that's a dick, you know, but you're already so swing first. And so if you, if someone's already levying threats right at you, uh, you don't have to wait for them to follow through. If you believe the threat to be credible, you are already, you are already in self-defense mode, act accordingly. And, and, you know, and I believe that again, it may take some time for that to matriculate, out to the criminals out there and we'll see how they respond. Uh, but if you know, it's, it's their best interest to self preserve. And if they know that they can walk into a Walgreens pocket, some shit and are going to get like two steps out of the sidewalk before they get smashed. Right. Maybe they stop shoplifting for a little while. Right. If the dude on stabbing people on the subway, this, you know, in, in New York, of course, uh, and New York would have to relax the gun laws or people would have to ignore the gun laws. If the dude stabbing folks on the, on the New York subway, right. Feared getting shot right by everyone. He attempted to stab, uh, because everyone may be carrying a firearm at that, you know, at that point in time, maybe he stabs less people or attempts to, because as soon as he pulls the knife out and raises it to harm someone, Right. Everyone caps his ass real quick in a hurry with no regret and no remorse and no care, right? Like that's that in, in my world, that is the appropriate response to any sort of violent behavior, right? You want to bring the violence. We can end the violence as quickly and easily as possible. If you want to talk about it, Hey, we can talk about it, but you got to put the knife down first, right? Or put the stuff back on the shelf, right? But the moment you decide to to disrespect people or property or possessions or whatever you want to call it, uh, then there ought to be some repercussions to that. And you don't need the police. You don't need to. You don't need uh, a a five point six billion dollar funded police force to do that. Uh, you can leave it up to the citizenry, and those citizens who feel incapable of doing that on their own. 
right, are free to hire someone out in agency to do it for them and let the free market of security services rise up in its place. And then you have voluntarily funded security forces instead of police who bitch about being defunded, even though they're getting more than ever, who don't do anything unless they're getting paid. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, the, they, they don't, they don't investigate the violent crimes. They only, they go more after the revenue generating stuffs, uh, that they, you know, writing tickets as opposed to investigating the violent crimes, uh, cause they always get paid through tax dollars. Just want to make that clear. They don't do anything unless they're getting those, you know, revenue generating endeavors in. Um, and so they ought to be defunded. They ought to be defunded, and if we have to go through that, you know, that growing pains period of time, where we all figure out how to live peacefully with each other, with each other, and I think in a lot of places that won't even be a problem. Like smaller towns, whatever, you know, the the, the whole police force is fired, all three of them, and it doesn't devolve into crime, you know, or anarchy, unfortunately. Uh, but in smaller places, it works. In larger places, you might have a little bit more difficult of a time. Uh, because in those bigger places, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, uh, the criminal element is already uh, well established there, right? They're, they're, the citizenry has been disarmed for so long that the criminal element does as they please for the most part, uh, and that needs to. there's going to be a period of readjustment as those folks get put back into check uh, by the citizens that they have been harassing and harming and victimizing for as long as they have because the police won't do anything about it, even though they got the billions of dollars in funding to do something. Moving on. All right, let's transition away from the police. Uh, This from Mises.org, myth versus ideology, why free market thinking is non-ideological, from, again, Mises.org. And I pulled this one uh, knowing that it was going to be a solo show. Um, because a lot of times these thought-provoking, you know, uh, intellectual endeavors don't usually make the cut because they ha- they tend to be a little bit longer than um, current events. So I try to save these up a little bit when I can, and, you know, when I have to do these solo shows, I, I pull them out of the old pocket uh, to get them on the record. So now that I'm done ranting, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of thinking. Uh, myth versus ideology. I'll begin with a provocative thesis. Socialism is ideological and free market thinking while involving myth is non-ideological. I will show why socialism is ideological and why free market thinking involves myth, but is non-ideological by defining the terms myth and ideology and distinguishing them from each other. The term myth has several connotations. The most common connotation today is that myth represents false belief. Thus, we may see use for the term myth in which some myth or other is figured as something to be debunked. We can point to hundreds of titles in which the word myth signifies a belief that is mistaken and which the article or book aims to overthrow with evidence and reasoning. When entering the myth of into the search field on Amazon.com, for example, uh, titles begin with phrases are suggested, including the myth of normal by Gaber mate, uh, the myth of the American inequality by Phil Graham, Robert Eklund et, et al. The myth of closure by Pauline boss and so on running the same search in an internet search engine yields, yields similar results, but includes articles on the myth of this or that, including a recent article by American Pravda, the New York times entitled, the legitimized, they legitimized the myth of a stolen election and reaped the rewards. Referring to the congresspersons who sought to block the supposedly legitimate results of the 2020 election. But one will also find in both searches titles like The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus, The Myth of Eternal Return by Mercia Eliade, The Myth of Return in Early Greek Epic by Douglas Frame and others. Or in a search engine, one finds discussions of various Greek myths in encyclopedias and on YouTube. Clearly, these latters, these latter uses of the term myth are different from the usage in the debunking books and articles. Myth, in this other sense, draw on a different meaning. 
the myth of Sisyphus by Camus is not an argument against the myth itself, but rather myth in the sense connotes a kind of tale that conveys a truth, an aspiration or a means of making sense of experience. It is structuring device for seeing order, patterns, possibilities, probable outcomes, and so on. Myth in this sense also include lessons to be learned and kept in the mind when crafting a life or life mission. The myth of Icarus is a tale about human hubris, for example. The story of the Garden of Eden is generally understood in terms as a myth about seeking to be like God. The sinking of the Titanic has been seen in terms of Greek myth as Icarus and other tales of human hubris. It is this latter sense of myth that I use here as myth as a means by which structure appearance experience finds meaning and craft the trajectory of our lives. I distinguish this sense of myth from ideology. Whereas myth provides general outlines for making sense of experience and provides guides for behaviors, ideology, to draw on a myth for describing it, forces the world into a procrustacean bed. All while ideology, excuse me, while all ideology is myth, not all myth is ideology. Ideology works by reducing the structure of the social and material worlds into a simplified image of reality and obscures or eliminates elements of human existence that contradict it. This is not true of all myth. Some myths are more capacious than ideologies. They allow varying interpretations and applications and do not constrain the possibilities for action in response to them. Thus, I am using the Marxist sense of ideology here. I refer to ideology in terms of how Marx defined it, a false consciousness. Ideology, as Marx suggested, presents an image of the world as seen through a camera obscura, upside down, and inverted. Ironically, it is Marxism and not free market thinking that is ideological, in Marx's own sense of the term. Under a Marxist state, the credulous subject lives under the incredulous subject lives under ideology. Told that the working class owns and controls the means of production and runs society, the fact of the matter is quite the opposite. Rather than leading to a stateless society of cooperation among free producers, each of whom, as Marx claimed, could hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, and criticize after dinner. Socialism leads inevitably to the same result every time it's tried. Cultural, economic, political, and social monopoly under a singular state system controlling all areas of life. Rather than allowing a choice, choice of multiple employments, the socialist state becomes the sole employer and determines the worker's exclusive fear of ex- sphere of activity. Rather than withering away, as Marx suggested, state powers is expanded to enforce cultural, economic, and social monopoly. Rather than political dis- politics disappearing, as alleged, an official socialist communist party monopolizes state power so that the system is unchallenged in other spheres. Instead of disappearing, the state remains necessary for enforcing socialist monopolies, and it uses all the means necessary to do so, including terror. Terror is not optional, but rather, as even Marx himself admitted, inevitable. And far from being limited to Stalin's reign, the terror began under Lenin soon after the revolution and continued with every subsequent communist leader, including Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, and Castro. Thus, the image of a world as presented by Marxist ideology is precisely upside down and inverted, and no one is subjected to ideology more than the subjects living under socialism and communism. In terms of its views of the capitalist order, Marxist ideology simplifies the world into two major classes, the working class and the bourgeoisie, or laborers and the owners of capital. Members of these respective groups supposedly share, or in the case of workers, should share identical interests and ideological outlooks. This simplified worldview represents a reduction and obscuration of the multiplicities of individual circumstances, social locations, and disarata. At the very least, we can say that Marxist ideology lacks granularity in its figuration of the social order. The social order is reduced to a cartoon version of reality, with the members of cardboard cutout classes acting in unison. This unified action is deemed to be really the case for the capitalist class and ideally the case for the working class. Thus, Marxism presents a mental image of the world that's easily grasped. This is in part why it's supremely ideological in character. Free market thinking is quite otherwise, because the free market involves individuals acting in their own interest and having multiple forms of property, including themselves, uh, including themselves as the primary property, 
It is impossible to reduce ideas of the free market to a simplified mental image. You can't represent the system of capitalism as seen through the eyes of the free market thinker in terms of simplified class antagonism. Unless, of course, you include the state and recognize that the state is, is its opponent and the primary exploiter. But as for individuals under an entirely free market system without state opposition, the activity is impossible to figure as a singular entity. This impossibility of reducing the actions of individuals to a singular block is why free market thinking eludes ideological figuration. On the other hand, because the truly free market is always approached asymptomatically and is never reached, free market thinking always involves myth. That is, so long as the free market remains an ideal and not a reality, free market thinking remains a myth. Myths as Vladimir Tismananu, I don't know how to say that, writes in Fantasies of Salvation, purpose, uh, propose another reality beyond history and their success depends on their plausibility. If they make sense for those supposed to believe in them, myths succeed in their most important task, to endow the individual with a sense of identity and an orientation in this disjointed world. Free market thinking involves myth because the free market under the state remains aspirational, but it eludes ideology because it does not aim to introduce constraints on individuals other than their acknowledgement of property rights. Another point of difference distinguishes free market aspiration from ideology. The myth of the free market is not utopian. It does not suggest the possibility of a perfect world, but rather acknowledges scarcity as a starting point and always existing condition. Socialism, on the other hand, imagines endless bounty and suggests that the only barrier to achieving it is the capitalist order. Marxism is likewise religious and utopian in character. Thus, both socialism and free market thinking involve myth, but of the two, only socialism is ideological. End of the article, and guess what? End of the show. Uh, thank you very much for listening. You guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience, or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. And if you would like to contribute to this show financially, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you all next week. Peace.